Welcome to Dose of Support, a podcast for healthcare professionals to preserve stories and provide a dose of support to each other through community and shared experiences. We're going to share successful and sometimes not successful self-care methods. And I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner and a professional just like you. Remember, I'm hosting this podcast, but I'm not your healthcare provider, and my guests aren't here to provide healthcare advice either. But we do encourage you to seek out care from your own healthcare professional. And although we're sharing stories from healthcare, I intend to fully adhere to HIPAA and protect privacy. And remember, this podcast is not related to any employer. It's hard out there, so let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned, everyone. Well, hey, listener. Welcome back to our weekly check-in. And I just wanted to let you guys know, obviously, I'm still moving, but this past weekend, I spent the last night in my home, which is closing at the end of this week. So lots of changes for me. And I'm actually cohorting with family as we all try to get through this pandemic together. So I've expanded my circle so that I can see more people and we're all going to support each other during this time. And so in the process, I've sold my house and now now we're completely moved out. And it's such a surreal process because I did love this home and um, what I'm excited for is what will come next. And so there's a lot going on there. And then a couple things that I've noticed that I wanted to tell the listeners out there. If you have tried to email me or you're, you're looking for an email from me, some potential guests have said that the email I've sent them has ended up in the junk folder or the trash folder. So if you're waiting for an email from me, please look there because I was so embarrassed when I had heard that people were like, why haven't you gotten back to me? And uh, I swear, Z's, you guys, I'm on it. I'm so on it. And it seems like sometimes my email is just ending up in the wrong bin. So check out that if you've been waiting. And then um, another thing I wanted to bring up was story submission. So I've heard from some people, you know, how do I get involved? How can I have my story heard on the podcast? And so it's real simple. There's a survey that I have most people take. And if you go to my website, www.doseofsupport.com, and you go to the community button, there are several buttons there. And one of them is a link to the survey. And then if you can't find that for some reason, because there's multiple links there, there's the Patreon link is there, Facebook, Instagram, all that. But if you can't find it there, go to the About page and there's a mission statement about what this podcast is about. And under that, it says to submit your story, click here. And so and then it's there's also a link for it in the Facebook group. So if you want to submit a story, I am accepting any story. All of these stories are important to me. And I just think that, you know, nobody should be excluded. And so if you want to be involved, please do submit your survey. And then I just email you from there. Um, And apparently you may or may not get that in your inbox. (laughs) So that's what I'm dealing with this week. This upcoming episode is episode number five, and so we've been doing this now for five weeks. Please tell your friends. Please share our episodes. 
we are really trying to grow. And this week is the first time I have interviewed a student. And so it'll be an interesting change from the other interviews that we've had. So sit back and stay tuned. Welcome back to Dose of Support, and this week we have Ellie Strafelda, who is finishing school to become an occupational therapist. And while she studies hard, she has found some particular challenges in the pediatric mental health environment. Today, she'll share her story. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, you're laughing at me already. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. And I think you are the first student that I've interviewed. And I wanted to know uh, what got you interested in healthcare. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I used to nanny for this family and the youngest of their kids had special needs. And she had an amazing occupational therapist that went above and beyond in researching different techniques for her and just would not give up. And it was really cool to see. And I would bring her to appointments and I got to see how a whole team of healthcare professionals really impacted her life. And it made me so excited to go and do something similar. So it sounds like an OT or an occupational therapist inspired you and you saw firsthand the difference that OTs can make. Definitely. That was definitely it. And, you know, with this little girl specifically, she had a rare diagnosis and they just didn't know what everything was going to look like when she was born. And then to see her start kindergarten on time and be on a gymnastics team and really get to engage in all the things that we want our kids to do, it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Oh, that's like so inspiring. And that's why though you are the people that we want in healthcare, oh. are the people that, that see that and say, I need to do that. I need to make a difference. So I'm just going to guess that you have an undergraduate degree in some kind of health science. Yeah, so I have a whole hodgepodge of undergraduate degrees. Um, oh boy. Well, not not really. I don't have that many. But I have a psychology degree, and I double majored with Spanish, and then I have a minor in special education. Wow. That actually is a great background for occupational therapy. It's pretty unique. I was trying – I had some extra credits because I couldn't quite graduate early – and so I was looking for minors and it was so great because we learned a lot about collaborating with other professionals in the education world, which is so important in the healthcare world. Um, I had a whole class about working with parents and families. That was great. So um, a special education, um, you know, minor or major is a great recommendation I have. And I got to spend a lot of time in schools working with kids with special needs, which was awesome. That, I mean, that's a really diverse background. It sounds like you've done a lot of pediatric work with, with kids. Yeah, that's definitely where I would think I'm going to go directionally, but I've had some work with adults in school um, in now in my master's program, and that's great as well. But I've always just been, I just like kids better than adults almost. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I've. 
I used to think that as well. And then I discovered that I hate the parents. So oh, yeah. I was like, kid, the kids are great, but the parents suck, man. They um, really can. <laughs> they can. So that's actually why I didn't choose pediatrics, but we need people that choose it and love it. And that's their thing. Um, so, okay. So you're like, I have this diverse background. I'm going to go back to school and be an OT because I was inspired. And what is school like? How do you get in? What? How long is it? It sounds like you're in a master's program, but I think there are doctorates too. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So OT is right now having a bit of a discussion about moving to mandating that all entry-level practitioners start with their doctorate, but that hasn't been approved yet. So right now you can enter the field with a master's degree, which my program is two and a half years. And there actually are some OTs still practicing with their bachelor's degree. So that's never even been mandated. So you never know what'll happen. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. All right. So that, so is every master's program about two and a half years or like, are they kind of along the same lines where you have to meet the same requirements to get certified or how does that work? I would say most of them that I saw were two and a half years and I was applying and a lot of the doctorates would be then three or three and a half. All right. So you've decided to go to school for two and a half years. And what does school entail? I'm guessing classroom work and clinical work if you're having to see patients. So at my program, we start out with coursework, and then we have an on-campus clinic. So when you're first starting in the program, you can observe the students who are further along in the program with their treatment. And we have a couple different disciplines. We have PTs in there, some PAs, and so then we can start treating while we are taking classes, and that's a low-income clinic for people in the area that maybe don't have insurance covered for rehab anymore. Okay, so to clarify for the listeners, there were a few acronyms in there. PT is physical therapist, PA is physician assistant, and then it was that was that the only ones that you mentioned? I just wanted to make sure yes. that Yeah, that those are the if other someone two. Someone was listening and they're like, "What's that?" Now, now you know, which we will cover those roles on dose of support as well. So, it sounds like you will be working and have been working in an interdisciplinary team. Yes, absolutely. That is a common theme on dose of support that I find when I'm talking to folks is like nobody does this work alone. And for anyone to think that they can, that's that's just not the case. Um, so what does a day in the life of an OT look like? So occupational therapists work in a lot of different settings, just like other healthcare professionals. So it really depends. But people think occupation means just job, but there are many different areas of occupation. So play is an area of occupation that we work on with kids, or there's activities of daily living, which are our self-care. So if we're showering or toileting. So when somebody sees an occupational therapist, they're having a performance deficit in one of those areas. It could be in their driving or their meal preparation. So we really look at the individual and determine what functional activity somebody is needing some intervention. And then it's usually a pretty collaborative process with the client, especially if they're an adult, about how to 
work on those specific tasks to get them back to engaging in them. So we try to move away from doing straight exercises and straight weightlifting because we really want to be practicing things in the most natural environment as possible so that they can eventually graduate out of OT and do everything as independently as possible. That's a hefty um, prescription for people. I mean, yes. if, if people have significant deficits like that, I mean, for the folks listening, not being able to drive, not being able to give yourself a bath or a shower, not being able to feed yourself. I mean, these are, and, and for kids, not, not being able to engage in normal play and normal activities that we actually, we know is important for healthy growth and development. Um, so kudos to you for going after this. Um, Thank you. <laughs> is there anything that you don't like about it? Like what is like, I know you're not like working yet. I know that you're still in school, but like so far, what's not your thing? I would say I'm not necessarily an acute care gal because I really enjoy long relationships and those acute care therapists are so great at getting the client to a level where they can do their transfers and they can do their dressing and then the clients move quickly to rehab or are discharged home. So I prefer a setting where I get to spend more time with the client week after week and get to build a relationship. Oh, connecting. That's (laughs) what we do here on Dose of Support. So that's actually... Acute care is, I feel like, I mean, obviously there's a need there, but I feel like in America, for those of you listening internationally, in America, our system is set up to respond, not to prevent. And really, we should be working on as much as possible outpatient. We should prevent people from getting to the hospital. And so everything should be done before then. And it sounds like you're more interested in that outpatient work or helping helping someone transition back home after they've had an acute issue. Um, and there's a huge need for that. Definitely. So what is the favorite, your favorite part? I mean, besides the connection. I think it's really great to let the client decide something that is meaningful to them because I think when they have a list of things and things aren't going well, you know, and they get to prioritize and pick that, you know, I really like to play cribbage and I had, you know, a CVA, a stroke, and I can't hold the cards, but an OT can come and show different positions and we can get out a, you know, adaptive equipment that can hold the cards for them. And then they still can have that piece that is fun for them. I think that's a really great aspect of it. So it sounds like goal setting and personalizing plans of care bring you a lot of joy. Definitely. Uh, I have to say on the equipment aspect, every OT I've ever met knows the like large array of (laughs) equipment. There's so many braces and like little, just the smallest little piece of whatever can help you get 
you know, the card playing thing. I mean, like there's something that will hold your cards for you so that you can play with one hand. I mean, but the OTs, they know all of that. I just can't believe I, there's no way that I can keep track of it. I sure, I sure do order it all the time. (laughs) Right. But I, I look to my OT to help make sure that I'm ordering the exact right equipment, the right size for the patient, because I know the OT has spent that time and, and personalize that for them. So what a great thing. So you're in school for this. You're around other people that are passionate about it. Um, and you, you were inspired by someone else, but do you think that the average person is sitting there watching TV and an occupational therapist is on TV and you see your profession represented in the media? Absolutely not. (laughs) Like never ever you've never seen it I can't I can't think of a time one time I was I was listening to another podcast and someone said my friend is an occupational therapist and I got so excited because oh my I, god I don't never hear it um most people will say oh well I already have a job or they think I'm a job coach or involved in that kind of thing so most people don't even know what the term is oh my gosh okay so I I think every time I see people in rehab on TV, like in real life, an OT would probably be there. But you know that on TV, the physician is doing it. Yeah. Like I, I or, you know, I literally it's so misunderstood. Other people do this work. And I think providers get the glorified. I guess, response in the media for the work that other people are doing. So I want to highlight your work. I think that what you are doing, even as a student, is helping people. And I think that people need to know what an OT does. Um, Is there anything that you do, like, when you're at home or when you're at work that you would never have done if it weren't for going to OT school? Oh, that's a good question. Um, like a good example is I literally wash my hands before I go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah. And I never did that before I got into nursing. <laughs> Sometimes I try to use my non-dominant hand for things because I want to like train myself for if I have an injury where my dominant hand is injured. Oh my gosh, my jaw's on the floor. Like, that's such a good idea. Like, but I'm not doing like reps. I don't know what I'm thinking that somehow I'm going to be like Rocky, like I have the tiger, like it's okay. My non-dominant hand is ready. You never know. You'll, I mean, at least you'll be prepared. Shit. Like the rest of us, I, I mean, but that's such a good idea. And like before OT school, were you doing that? No way. No. no. Like hashtag healthcare. Okay. Like <laughs> this is like, it changes you. Being in healthcare really changes you. Absolutely. And, <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. Listeners, you heard it here. Try to train your, your brain and use your other hand. Um, all right. We are going to take a short break and we will be right back with Ellie's story. back with Ellie Strafelda, who is finishing school for her occupational therapy degree. And Ellie has a story about mandated reporting, and that can be kind of a scary subject. And so Ellie, take it away. What happened? I was working on one of my rotations, and 
I was talking to a kid and I was getting some red flags about some discipline that had been going on at home. And my supervisor wasn't in the room when this happened. And so I worked on what I could talking with the kiddo. I mean, we're not supposed to really try to be CSI investigators and get all the information. We're just supposed to be good listeners. And I'd learned that in school when we had someone from the county come and do some training with us. And I went and spoke with my supervisor after the session was over. And she was so incredibly supportive. And she took my concerns very seriously, which I appreciated because I know that is not the culture in all places. Some people don't want to ruffle feathers or they think kids don't necessarily know what they're saying. And so I'm so grateful for the supervisor that I had because she helped me fill out the mandated report and checked in with me pretty regularly in the couple days that followed. And she had me be very involved in the process. And now I know that if this happens again, when I am not being supervised, when I'm actually working, I know how to do it. And I'm just so grateful because now I don't have any regrets because I know that kid was being checked on and everyone was caring about his safety. Awesome. So I think that a lot of people don't know I mean, people in healthcare know that they're mandated reporters, but can you, in your best words, tell us what is a mandated reporter? What does that mean? So in healthcare, we, well, not just healthcare, lots of fields, education and other people who work with maybe vulnerable populations. So that would be our kids or our adults with disabilities and our senior citizens. If we see something, we say something. We have a legal obligation to report that to our county services who will then decide if they should follow up with the individual, if they should do more research. Most times they call the practitioner to get more of a dialogue about what happened. But we're supposed to be on the lookout for these red flags so that we can protect those that we, those that we treat. And I mean, this, so this podcast does not give healthcare advice, but what, what are some examples of red flags that you were taught about? So when we were taught physical signs, so if we see abnormal bruising or cutting on someone's body that doesn't look like it could have been an accident, if someone is pretty skittish around touch, you know, sometimes we use therapeutic touch if we're doing um, you know, nerve glides or I, you know, sometimes we use therapeutic touch. And if somebody is very scared of that, they might have some past trauma or present trauma they're working through. Additionally, people could say things like was in the case that I was just speaking about with my kid was that he said something that was a red flag of me thinking that that wasn't a safe disciplinary action for a, a caregiver to take. Take me back to the moment that you were having a conversation with this patient and um, he or she said what happened or they said the statement, how did you feel? I got a pit in my stomach right away because I don't want anyone to be being abused or even being hurt one time. And I just felt nervous that this kid was going home and didn't feel 
loved and safe at all times. And sometimes kids do feel loved and safe and there are occasional instances and, but I just was nervous to send them home. So nervous, scared, anxious, pit in your stomach. And I, I think the folks that are listening, we've all probably felt those feelings and we, we, we know what that feels like. So um, it sounds like your supervisor in this situation knew how to comfort you and knew how to take control of the situation and do the right thing. When you, when you say you know what to do if this happens in the future again, what do you do? Well, I think what my supervisor modeled for me was that we report it. You know, we don't have to think about it too much and think, is this a big enough deal? If we have that feeling, it, it is a big enough deal because we need to try to help our, our patients. So if it happens in the future, I know it's worth a report. But then because she was checking in on me and making sure I was doing okay, making sure I talk with another supervisor for some emotional support because we think about these things when we leave work and make sure that we're able to take care of ourselves as we're processing unfortunate situations for our patients. I, I'm nodding my head yes because we we see some shit in healthcare. We see things. It's like going to war. And I, I'm not a soldier, but I sort of am in a way. And I, I don't want to offend anyone that is in the military. But in healthcare, it's you see stuff and you can't unsee it. And it doesn't just like you don't just leave it when you leave the building. Like how can seeing child abuse or people shot or, you know, dead bodies, like how does that not affect you? Um, and so I think it sounds like you had a supportive presence that understood your situation and was able to, to give you a dose of support. Um, and besides that, how do you practice self-care? Um, well, one thing I wanted to say, just as you were talking about everything that we see in healthcare, is that I think most of the people drawn to the helping professions, we are these empathetic people. We want to help, but then we feel so much when we leave. Um, I really like to plan social time where I can get away and talk about something else. I also have started doing a gratitude journal during oh, this pandemic. That. Yeah, and I do it just... Um, right before I go to bed. And that really helps me because I sometimes have some sleep issues. And if I think about right before I go to bed, all the good things that happened that day, that's really been helping me. That's beautiful. Um, do you have a journal in particular that you would recommend to listeners? They could go to Amazon and get something or um, something that you picked up at a store? It's just a, yeah, it's just a blank journal. And I have some pretty pens that I got from Target <laughs> that I use. Okay, so it doesn't have to be anything special or labeled a gratitude journal. Anyone can practice this. What do you do? Do you just open a page, put the date on there, and write a sentence, or how do you do it? So I write three things that happen during the day. So I usually get ready for bed, and I've lit a candle in my room. And so when I come back, it's just the candle and it smells nice. And then I sit down at my desk and pull out the journal and 
I try to think about them before I just write them down so it's a little bit longer of a practice. And maybe I'll think of more than three things, which is great when I have a good day, um, and just write them down. And then I, very often I find myself going back and reading the day befores or a couple months ago, and that's a really nice practice as well to think of how there have been a lot of good things during this hard time. The gift that keeps on giving. I love it. Yes. So, okay, when are you done with school? I have to know. December of 2020, hopefully. Oh my God, it's coming. It's yes. it's this year. Yes. I mean, <laughs> if the world doesn't burn down in the meantime, Ellie needs your dose of support, you guys. So Ellie's a student. She's yes. a starving artist. She's she needs she <laughs> yes. needs support. But it it also it sounds like you can give support through your gratitude practice. You benefit from that. And I think the barrier to people starting a practice like that is actually getting going. I think once you get going, you see the benefit. Um, and there there's actually some data to show that it helps decrease anxiety. Um, by having a gratitude practice because it's sort of like a mindfulness practice. Um, and I'm certainly no expert here, but um, I, I think that that's a great tip for people. And it sounds like it's not that difficult. No, it's not. And I learned about it because I took a free course online called the Science of Wellbeing. It's a Yale course that anyone can take for free. And she goes into the research behind happiness science. And that's where OMG. I learned to start this. It's so great. I loved it. We we should link that in the show notes. Ellie, can you just like email that to me? And I will, listeners, I will get it for you. It'll be in the show notes. Yes. I think that's, I think we should share that. Absolutely. Um, it was great. I, I learned so much from it. You guys heard Ellie. She can help you with your gratitude practice. She can help you with any questions around being an OT student or even a little bit of mandatory reporting. If you find something similar in your experience to Ellie's story, please don't hesitate to reach out. Reach out to me at hello at doseofsupport.com by email. You can find us on Instagram at doseofsupport, and we have a private Facebook group as well. Um, if you want to support the show, please look at my Patreon page. I'm I'm just doing this for free, y'all. And follow the show. We're all so excited that you're starting this project. It's just so great and so needed. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yes. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. Stories matter. And now we've captured another one. We'll be back next week with a brand new guest and a whole different story. Until then, make connections and give each other a dose of support. Dose of Support is written, produced, edited, everything by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by Rafael Sequeira. Don't forget to rate the show or leave feedback wherever you listen. I'm punching out until next week, where we try to find some self-care in healthcare once again. Music